Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Martin Willis, your host, and this is a pre-recorded show tonight. I am going to be somewhere warm and uh, out of touch with the internet. So uh, um, hopefully um, I will uh, be enjoying myself while this airs. And uh, thank you all for listening. I have some great guests uh, this evening. We have uh, Massimo uh, Teldorani, um, trying to pronounce that the best I can, and also Jensine Andresen. And they have uh, been involved in this book. I love when academics take a look at uh, the UAP topic. And I think um, in the last, you know, three, three and a half uh, coming up on, is it four years coming up on, uh, that um, there is more of uh, academics that are, are looking at this topic seriously and not as concerned. Um, you know, we're going to be talking about that a lot uh, tonight uh, with my two guests. I'm going to bring them in right now. Welcome, Massimo. Massimo, yes. Thank welcome. you for having me here. Thank you. And Jensine, thank you. Thank you, Martin. Uh, you reached out to me, Jensine. So um, I do appreciate that. And um, so I don't know which one of you want to take this. I want to know what the genesis of writing this book. I'm going to put this up uh, right now, what the genesis of writing this book was. I, I can probably take that one. Um, okay. Well, I, I did reach out to you, Martin, because I've been following your podcast for a long time, and I've always enjoyed it so much. Well, thank I, you. I, no, you have a great podcast. You're really a very fair interviewer and um, you've got great guests. And so, yes, um, I, I was the one that came up with the idea. I had been working with my co-editor, Oct Octavio A. Chan Torres, in a completely different area, astrobiology ethics. And he had been editing a volume in that field. And so I got to know him. When that project was completed, I pitched this idea and he thought it was a great idea. And so we just then started contacting many different people. It was very important to me that it be an international project. So I mm -hmm. wanted as much representation as I could get from academics around the world. And I also wanted it to be multidisciplinary, which is why you see a section on science, then some, you know, philosophy, a little bit of interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary research. And we even have um, one chapter about sort of the, you know, medical type side of things. So, yeah, that was it. And Massimo was one of the first people to accept. All so right. I thank him very much for that. And then after I could tell people that he was on board, then I got a lot more people coming on board. So thank you, Massimo, for that. Thank yeah. you, <laughs> Yeah. Yes, and what uh, what was your interest in this topic? I know you've written about it for a number of years, so you must have had some type of fascination with it in general. Yeah, uh, I have to tell you, I've been reading a lot of uh, ufological books in my free time, and honestly, I, I was uh, bored because it's, uh, it was all about stories or something. Uh, I wanted to see if we can do more about that. And, and if, uh, uh, as an astronomer, I could uh, apply my methodology and also sensor instruments to try to get real data on the phenomenon. So already in 1994, 
three years after me and obtaining my PhD, uh, I presented the project uh, of a so-called UFO monitoring, astronomy-like UFO monitoring, which I presented in a big congress uh, in 1994, just in Nesdalen in Norway, where famous uh, recurrent yes. uh, phenomena occurring uh, very often. So that was my start. From that time on, I uh, organized and participated to expeditions uh, using uh, sensors, uh, so field work, trying to get data on uh, this kind of phenomenon because in Stalin it's almost like a natural laboratory because this phenomenon occurs very often. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the same time, I was an astronomer at university to um, both optical astronomy and, and radio astronomy. I was also um, a researcher in the field of SETI. And uh, I also did SETI research at oh, the same wow. time. Parallel mm-hmm. life, something like, uh, um, you know, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde that live uh, together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've heard, um, I've heard uh, well, I want to say, I guess I would call them more of uh, skeptics or debunkers, either, either one of them, uh, more, more of skeptic, skeptics. And, and I, I, I like to, uh, I appreciate skepticism, but I have heard them say in the past, and there's a, a great blog that my friend Alejandro Rojas did on this, where they'll say, well, if, you know, UFOs are out there and, you know, other people are seeing them, how come no astronomers are seeing them? Well, uh, he corrected that by giving all types of accounts of astronomers. And I personally know uh, two of them that had, um, you know, uh, one of them, a big triangle flew right over his head while he had his his telescope on his a tripod on his shoulder walking from uh, from an event. And then another one um, who's who has... Uh, had an underwater situation, which is really, he was on a submarine when there was something going over 200 knots um, that was seen on radar. So, I mean, very interesting. This was years ago. But anyway, I'm going to ask you, uh, have you known of other astronomers that have claimed to have seen some something? No, not personally, because I have known many astronomers uh, in Italy and abroad. But I know of an investigation by uh, an American astronomer many years ago, in the 50s, I think, or 60s, who investigated uh, um, strange sightings in the sky by astronomers, uh, some uh, prodigies in the sky. So it happened, but it happened very rarely. And the reason of that is that uh, we, uh, when we use telescopes, uh, we um, observe a very thin portion of the sky, something like, mm-hmm. uh, like yes. something like a, a two or four square degrees. So the probability that we see something that we didn't want to search is extremely low. So it's a, just a selection effect. So uh, the reason why astronomers didn't see is that an astronomer doesn't go outside and look like a fisheye all over the sky, but only a small um, point uh, where there is a target that we want uh, uh, to observe. I mean, stars, galaxies, or something else. I was... Uh, go ahead. 
If yeah. I could jump in, you bet. there is a there is a, a very famous emeritus Stanford University emeritus professor Peter Sturek, and mm. he worked in astrophysics and he was the founder of the Journal for Scientific Exploration or JSE. And back in 1994, he did a three part study and research paper on specifically, you know, this question of what's going on with astronomers and are they seeing UFOs? And he himself had had a sighting. So he was extremely interested in the topic hmm. um, because, you know, being as we now call them trained observers, but in this case, not a military trained observer, but a scientific one, he was convinced that what he saw was quite unusual. And so that's a, that's a good resource, that three-part JSE study from 1994, Peter Sturrock, S-T-U-R-R-O-C-K. I have heard the name and I don't know exactly why, but I have heard that name and it must pertain to this in particular, I would think. Um, so I was in an observatory at a college uh, several years ago and I was looking at Andromeda and uh, all of a sudden this bright flash was so bright, I yelled like, and it was actually a meteorite. I mean, what are the odds of that? I mean, it was it streaked and it was just a loud like burst of light right in my eye. But uh, so, I mean, you're observing such a small, like you're saying, such a small little section and the odds of that have, has that ever happened to you or anyone that you know? Yeah, yeah, it happened. Um, uh, I was using different kind of telescopes uh, at, at least three, four times. And it happened to have a shooting star just uh, during uh, an observation because I was in, a, in the computer room. And unfortunately, during the exposure, uh, there was this uh, streak of light uh, on, the, but it was clearly the, um, something like a shooting star, something like that. Only once I had a very strange thing. Uh, I was uh, alone. There was no technician. And there was an uh, opening the dome here, um, all of a sudden there was a big flash of light outside. I thought it was headlights, colored lights from the road that anyway is quite far away. And uh, the beam is uh, perpendicular to, uh, to the uh, line of sight. So it's difficult that it penetrated inside the dome. At that point, uh, uh, I was using a um, photo photon counting photometer uh, all of a sudden, it went in over range, and uh, I had to reboot all the system. It took about 20 minutes to reboot everything, you know, with, with those old floppy disks. Uh, it was a smaller telescope <laughs> and not the bigger one, which is more modern. So something strange happened once, but uh, I didn't see anything outside because it was very busy in problem solving and so on. The only strange situation happened to me during astrophysical observation was that yeah. uh, never anymore yeah well that was definitely aliens <laughs> i'm joking yeah. i'm joking well yeah. i was looking outside yeah i was worried that they can kidnap me i don't know it was alone <laughs> yeah well you're still here that's good they decided to leave yeah. you there yeah um so i don't know which one of you want to start this but i'd like for you to talk about the chapter or chapters you have added to this book, um, either one of you. Uh, I had just started reading yours, uh, Massimo, uh, but either one of you uh, can take that. I wanna hear from both of you. So I don't know who wants to give it a start. 
you, you, Martin, just to clarify, you'd like us to talk about our own chapters in the book yes. or? Yeah, yes. OK. Yeah. Massimo, you want to go first or you? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I will try to be uh, quick. Um, so oh, no, the, no hurry. Um, no hurry. Yeah. The invitation, the invitation by, by Jensen was very kind and also uh, intellectually stimulating. Um, uh, the point was that uh, um, I felt that I had to tell what I think about the so-called UFO phenomenon and the way in which much be treated. So I didn't feel that I had to uh, explain technically what uh, I'm doing. I mean, mathematically, like uh, I often uh, do, uh, but I only wanted to tell what kind of speculations or what kind of ideas were rolling around my head about the phenomenon. And what came out was a chapter uh, split in two parts. The first part, uh, mentioning my activity with the SETI project, and also I published on peer-reviewed journals like Acta Astronautica, um, um, investigating the possibility that something uh, 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 and that extraterrestrials not only are sending signals to us, uh, which I was trying to get with a multi-channel spectrum analyzer, but also that they could send some um, technological objects towards us, or they could um, surround their own stars with uh, techno things that we call technosignature. So I did a technical proposal, how to find them, and what came out is that, what do we expect from that research? We expect infra an infrared access from their star, for instance, a solar type star, like it, it is su suspected to be, uh, uh, is not expected to uh, send a lot of infrared radiation. If we have an excess of infrared radiation, that could be due to uh, technological sphere that is wrapping the star, uh, like a so-called Dyson sphere. Dyson sphere, yeah. Some of those um, many objects can theoretically be sent out of uh, there of the Dyson sphere, and they would become like a space arcs, Dyson arcs. One of them, or more, one or more, could be in the solar system. For instance. Uh, Oumuamua, um, which uh, Professor Abiloab uh, discovered with his colleagues, could be one of them. Um, uh, and then, clearly, if we think about uh, this kind of object, which I imagine like uh, carriers, uh, they could send their own shuttles for exploration to the most interesting planet, ours. And so we could see possibly UFOs or something like that. And it's uh, it's not impossible. There is no proof about that. Uh, I mean, scientific proof, but it's possible. This is the standard view. And I spoke about in the first part. In the second part, um, I wanted to mention, because it's because of honesty, uh, of uh, intellectual honesty, uh, what I've been studying, because uh, uh, clearly I am very focused on my research technically. Uh, I'm very much on the ground mathematically, uh, also now, for instance. Uh, but I also want to read, I want to try to inform to see what my colleagues are, are publishing. 
Um, there is uh, some uh, important research that has been done by some German uh, and Russian scientists about the behavior of plasmas in particular conditions. Okay, uh, If they interact with the uh, dust particles that are electrostatically charged, it's possible that they, uh, some helical structure very similar, not to say identical to the DNA, start to form, not only statically, but dynamically, they multiply. So they, um, how to say, um, remind literally the phenomenon of uh, uh, organic life. So uh, someone, uh, this was published on the New Journal of Physics uh, in 2007, started to think about, is it possible life is developed only on carbon or even silicon or not on plasmas? That was very interesting. At mm. the same time, I noticed that there were studies by physicist, quantum physicist David Bohm on plasmas. He did his PhD research on plasmas, and he discovered that plasmas behave not like separate particles, particles, but like a whole uh, that is a kind of uh, um, in a sort of unity in its behavior. If you trigger one particle, all the others will feel that. Mm. Uh, some other physicists found that in some conditions, uh, plasma particles uh, can become entangled, uh, creating uh, particles that are called plasmons. And third, there is a theory uh, that is uh, still controversial, but not so much controversial as 10 years ago by Nobel Physics and Nobel Prize, uh, Roger Penrose, and uh, anesthesiologist Stuart Emeroff. Okay? Uh, they did a model about consciousness, um, how the brain works, okay? and they uh, elaborated the model, in particular Penrose, telling that uh, um, uh, the brain um, uh, activity is not only made by um, uh, like a machine, like uh, the um, firing of uh, electrical uh, signals from the neurons, from the axons, from the um, synapses or so. But it's something that could be created by so-called microtubules, which are component of the neurons. When microtubules become entangled together in quantum way, namely when you have a quantum coherent uh, unity among one billion microtubules, and then we have a spontaneous collapse, uh, both at the level of space-time and at the level of quantum vacuum. At that point, you have a moment of consciousness. At that point, I told, isn't it possible that uh, uh, the same mechanism uh, happens with um, uh, plasma particles. Is it possible that some some plasma particles uh, are entangled together in a, in a condition of quantum coherence and that they are able to create moments of consciousness? So at this point, uh, yes? No, no, I'm saying, wow, this is really fascinating. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. It's something clearly... Um, that has nothing to do with what I am doing now. Now I'm doing calculations only on spectroscopy, uh, but this is speculation. 
and uh, I want to specify it's a speculation. But I think it's very important because if um, there is a, an analogy okay, uh, between uh, plasma particles and the microtubules in the brain, if the microtubules in the brain behave really like Penrose say, if plasma particles uh, behave in, in, in a similar way, then it could be that some light balls, like plasma balls, like they are seen in Stalin, uh, for instance, but also in your country, like the uh, Brown Mountain, uh, Marfa, right. uh, Yakima, or so. Uh, it's po is it possible that these are kind of life form and in case that they can also reach a state of consciousness because of an entanglement, quantum entanglement situation between its particles? Well, I thought, and then I told, well, um, uh, we tried uh, to stimulate this uh, phenomenon, in particular, um, um, my friend, uh, Professor Erling Strand in Norway, in Dalin, stimulating these balls using a laser beam. And these balls were pulsating, and uh, every time the laser beam was aimed at them, uh, they were changing the pulsation rate. So, like if it was intelligent, it could be a sort of new photon-photon uh, uh, um, interaction that we don't know yet, so something that has nothing to do with intelligence or something, or it could be to something else. I think I have an hypothesis that can be uh, tested with the instruments uh, that uh, uh, a laser beam trigger uh, um, collapse of the quantum wave function that unites all the particle and create momentarily a consciousness moment. This is mad hypothesis. I know that. I know it is mad. But I know also what I like of this is that it can be tested using high-speed uh, cameras or photometers to see if there is something uh, coded inside in the way in which these lights pulsate or change their color or the way in which they move in the sky. Um, this can be tested. Um, I was participating to the International Academy of Astronautics. I spoke, uh, um, presented two works in San Marino, not about this, but about uh, SETI. Uh, the next time, three years later, I sent a proposal to study also this possibility. And the guy who command uh, SETA in Europe, who is a very good scientist and uh, who is also a friend, told, don't dare to come to Paris uh, to present this because um, the very most part of the commission is against, against uh, your uh, proposal. They are completely scared. Jeez. We have the duty to test things. When things can be testable, we have to test them. Uh, and uh, this is one, only one possibility. It's not what I am working on now, but I think it's very important. I feel it's very, uh, definitely important. Yeah. That is really fascinating. You know, people have been, by the way, your English is perfect. You have really great English. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, yeah. uh, people have been talking about seeing, they call them orbs a lot of times, uh, you know, uh, for years. And a lot of people have been saying 
they seem to be under intelligent control, which uh, has, you know, you hear that over and over again when it comes to these things. Um, you know, the way they react, the way they react to objects and whatever, you know, taking turns in front of people and things like that from, you know, what people have uh, said or seem to have witnessed. Um, and, you know, perhaps it's a, perhaps it's some type of life that we would not expect. Um, you know, that's, that's the thing I think a lot when I just, I, I think that um, a lot of times I think about the fact that we probably only see so much, you know, we have this spectrum that we see in, in, in all our senses, there may be other things around us that we have no idea that are exist at all, yes. which is another fascinating thing. And the whole thing you said about the quantum, like the quantum type of entanglement, things like that is also, you know, uh, just uh, what did uh, Einstein say? Po spooky uh, something? I can't remember exactly what is. Spooky it's, action in distance. In distance. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, really, really, really fascinating. And as far as, uh, you know, people have suggested there could, you know, panspermia might be something that's happened here or other places. And it seems to me that life wants to exist. You know, who knows what the first spark of life, how that all happened and where it all happened. But uh, but it does seem like life wants to exist. What do you what do you think about that? That talk? Well, I am not a biologist, so I cannot express uh, things of which I am not competent. But um, uh, if the plasma life hypothesis were true, if it could be demonstrated, then uh, the universe would be full of life because 99% uh, of the, the universe is made of uh, uh, plasma. So uh, life yeah. could exist everywhere, also in the most um, unthinkable place like the moon or other things. Regarding the biological biological um, aspect uh, of life, I cannot uh, tell anything because this is uh, this is not my field. But I might accept, uh, even if it's not demonstrated, the possibility that uh, yes, comets uh, are full of organic material, and I also aim comet uh, at uh, with a radio telescope, uh, a lot of organic material. And so they could have brought life. Uh, there are many comets that are falling on Earth. Very little. They, they burn in the atmosphere normally. It could be that. Or it could be that, uh, yes, someone might have engineered uh, life from elsewhere and uh, seeding uh, planets uh, first using terraforming like we could do maybe in the next uh, 300 years on Mars. Mars, yeah. On Mars, first starting with terraforming and then injecting uh, um, the, the seeds of life, the DNA. This is very possible. It's nothing science fiction. It could be possible. So uh, it, I don't think that life uh, spontaneously um, installs itself uh, on the planets. Uh, but that you need uh, a push from uh, from outside, unless the comet uh, bring organic materials, then yes, everything would be spontaneous. Uh, but you need uh, something intelligent that uh, creates such an harmony that we see around us, 
except for some mistakes, uh, you know, all the software was not perfect, in my opinion. But anyway, it's a beautiful spectacle. Yes. Now, you mentioned silicone-based life, the possibility of that. What would that be, you know, instead of carbon-based life? What would that, what would the difference be as far as, uh, like, could there be DNA in, in silicone-based life? And what would we expect to see it for, as an organism? Well, in that case, uh, uh, not being a biochemist, a bi biologist, I can say that, but... Uh, in silicon, uh, I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, but I might think that uh, uh, the, there are, um, I would say, probes, uh, like um, scientist von Neumann uh, decades ago predicted, probes that are made of um, silicon, but also of intelligent silicon chips or something, that is governed by artificial intelligence. For instance, uh, as uh, Professor Avi Loeb said several times, it's possible, it's difficult to think that uh, a living being, a biological living being, uh, will cross uh, space uh, to come up to here, um, uh, staying in space for uh, years, okay, and being subject to and cosmic radiation that is very dangerous. So you would use something else that is robotically um, probably um, constructed uh, to uh, explore space and send data um, to the origin of these the original biological beings. Um, I have no idea how a silicon waveform can form. Some biologists think so. I don't know the mechanism, but I know that they have been hypothesizing this thing. I personally think it's something technological. Um, yeah, I would say. Uh huh. Well, uh, well, I'm I'm really excited about this conversation. I'm really loving it. Uh, so, uh, Jensen, I would like for you, if you could, at this point, talk about your your chapter that you've written. Sure. Actually, I, I have two chapters in the book, the first and the last. And the first is more or less an introduction explaining what the invitation was to the contributors. And I, I just want to kind of back up one step and, and make another statement, which is Massimo and I are both very privileged to be members of the Galileo Project at Harvard. Right. But, mm -hmm. but this project, this book, uh, kind of predates that. And so nothing, oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Nothing that we say here during the interview should be in any way construed as any kind of a statement on behalf of Galileo Project. That is a completely different instrument-based, um, you know, mainstream scientific methodology project. So just to be really clear about that. Sure. Um, uh, now, the book, as Massimo said, was meant to be speculative. And when I used to teach, I, I did a lot of work in cognitive science and neuroscience, for example. So what has always been interesting to me is the 
current maps. So this now I'm, I'm talking with respect to the first chapter in the book, which is called Cartographies of Knowledge and Academic Maps or something like that. But basically what, what the thought project was for me was to say, imagine, just imagine if humankind were to come in contact with a wildly sophisticated and intelligent species. What would that do to the cartography or the map of the academic disciplines? Because what I've noticed being in academia, you know, most of my life, although not entirely, but most of it, was we take for granted the demarcations between the disciplines. So we almost take for granted this idea that this is physics and this is, you know, these are the endpoints of physics. Then we have this thing, biology, then we have chemistry, you know, et cetera, through all our disciplines. And one of the things that intellectually always struck me is the fact that even though you have linguistic diversity and cultural diversity around the world, people speaking completely different languages and very different ideological commitments and very different cultural contexts. Nevertheless, in every major developed world that has a university system, the map of the disciplines is more or less completely the same, regardless of where you are on earth and regardless of what language you're speaking. Well, that's kind of odd to me. Why is there this standardization in how we think about the disciplines? But that that same consistency and standardization struck me as having a downside risk, which is if we've gotten it wrong, then we've gotten it wrong across the whole world. And we're reproducing in our university system whatever we might have seen incorrectly. So the thought experiment of, of working you know, speculating on what might we learn from an advanced extraterrestrial species was meant to sort of shake us free of the commitments that we already have to these hard and fast disciplines. So that's how I introduced it. I was saying, you know, what do you think? Would these disciplines stay the same? I very much doubt it mm. because already we know, obviously, you know, I've, I've, our biggest problem, well, a very big problem. Well, let me back up another step. We know we've gotten it wrong. And how do we know that? Because society is completely dysfunctional. I mean, it, it, this world couldn't be more dysfunctional if it tried. <laughs> and so that is an indicator that there's something very wrong because people work hard in school. You know, we all do. And Yet we come out, we take lead, well, not myself personally, but people who graduated from very good universities and work very hard and go into positions in leadership. And then somehow it just, it just doesn't work. We're really in a mess. So instead of blaming people for that or individuals for that, I wanted to look at the root cause. What might be wrong intellectually and cognitively about how we are dividing the disciplines in academia that's causing us to reproduce again and again and again, thinking that doesn't work. So 
that, that sort of, that was the introduction. And then people were invited to respond to that. Would disciplines merge? Would, would some disciplines cease to exist? What do you do with this massive divide between science and religion that people have been trying to bridge for decades? And, you know, that has had mixed results. So that was kind of the, the starting off point, the leaping off point. Now, now to jump to the completely other side of the book, the last chapter, that, that's, a, that's a big chapter. That's a long chapter. It's got three main parts. I don't wanna maybe go into too much detail, but there, what I set out to do was to consider sort of reality, the nature of reality or ontology as it's called from three points of view. So let's, let's look at reality first from the point of view of the US government and what the US government has done in the last few years, especially with the inception, the establishment of the Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon Task Force, Task Force the UAPTF back in August, um, I think it was August 14 of 2020, so I, I kind of trace what the government has done since then. And actually prior to that, I go all the way back to early decades, look at the FBI, CIA, et cetera. So I'm triangulating. I'm saying, let's look at this phenomenon from three, point of view, three points of view. The first being the government. The second is from the perspective of how David Bohm, who was in my mind one of the one of the biggest geniuses that's ever existed on this planet, David J. Bohm, who's a physicist and a philosopher and a linguist and and a mystic. So the second part of that last chapter looks at how might Bohm's thinking inform how we think about UAP and ETI. And when I say ETI, it's ETI, it's the acronym Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And then the third part of the chapter is how might Eddie be viewing us? Mm. And so that, you know, that's the progression that I take us through in that final chapter. But I want mm. to, you know, rather than necessarily, you know, people can read that, <laughs> they can read it. But, but rather than take too much time on that right here, although it might be useful to just run through a few important dates because sure. it's it's very confusing for people what's happened since August of 2020 with all the names and the groups and the NDAA and this, that, and the other thing. So I, I might circle back to that, but I really want to connect to what Massimo was saying. So in addition to our common interest in UAP and Eddie, we have a common interest in David and deep respect for the work of David Bohm. So in the third chapter, or I'm sorry, the last chapter, but in the, the section on Bohm, I really looked at one idea that Bohm has articulated in a paper um, that's obviously cited, but it's, it's his idea of the inseparability of matter and consciousness. And this might now link to the earlier comments that Massimo made about plasmas. So, it seems to me, based on all the documentation and all the witness testimony about the advanced capabilities of UAP, 
that the consciousness behind not conventional UAP, but the truly extraterrestrial ones of which I believe there are some, is not tripping over the Cartesian dualistic notion that mind and matter are separate. So that's really a, a point I try to emphasize. I think that is one of the places that human society has really gone wrong, which is reinforcing, mostly because of the influence of Descartes, this notion that mind and matter are separate. And Bohm does a beautiful job in a 1990 paper in explaining why, from his point of view and from the point of view of what he refers to as his ontological or causal interpretation of the quantum theory, why mind and matter are inseparable. And he, I, I, one of the statements that Bohm made that I read, you know, probably over 30 years ago, but this just stuck with me. Oh, there's a great picture of him. I just, a, a true genius. He and Ramanujan, the mathematician, as far as I'm concerned, are probably the two most genius people have ever existed. Um, but he made a statement, which is that even rocks have a type of proto-consciousness. And I remember reading that over 30 years ago and being, you know, that having a, a really a wow moment when I read that statement. And it does open up a lot of possibilities because for, for Bohm, mind and matter are not absolutes. There's no substance, dual, substance dualism there. It's a continuum between, it's like a magnet and one pole is more mental and the other pole is more material. But essentially he explains how that whole thing is a continuum. And, and so it does open up a lot of possibilities for how we think about life and the nature of life and what is life and what is existence. And, and so anyway, that, that was a lot. So I'll just leave it there for now. Oh, no, no, that's, and you said you were gonna circle back to some uh, Well, maybe, examples. you know, one, one, one thing I, I, I might want to do here just to make it clear because so many, um, I've noticed there's been a lot of confusion and it certainly makes sense there's so much confusion because DOD has changed acronyms and there's this confusion about what's going on at DOD on the one hand and what's going on at the level of the NDAA, which is the National Defense and Authorization Act and how those two things go together. Um, you know, obviously the NDAA being a piece of legislation and so that's driven by Congress on the one side, whereas what we see on the other side is being driven by DOD and ODNI, which is the Office of Director of National Intelligence. So I thought it, it, it might just make a little sense to say. So the UAPTF was started um, in August of 2020. And then in November of 2021, what was established by the US government was what was called the 
Well, the acronym was AOIMSG, which is completely unpronounceable. I, I, I tried to practice pronouncing it before. I'm like, you can't, it's just, you can't pronounce it, but it is the Airborne Object Identification and Management Synchronization Group. That's right. And so, and also there was a, um, uh, an executive council also. So in November, 2021, that was established and a lot of people don't realize that in the press release of November 23 of 2021, announcing the formation of AOIMSG, it also announced immediate establishment of the task force. So, for example, I've heard some people say, oh, you know, now there's a task force, a Navy task force on one side, and then there's what, to, no, the task force ceased to exist when AOIMSG came into being. But then that got a little confusing because um, in July of 2022, AOIMSG was renamed and it became then the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Officer Arrow that we have now. Right. So that was yeah. just a renaming and a broadening of scope. And I've also heard people be confused by the, the word in their domain. So I heard um, two podcasters, I won't mention who, but quite um, prominent podcasters are like, oh, domain must mean different geographical regions of the world, like the Middle East or Asia. No, it doesn't mean that at all. It, it means, you know, air, land, sea, the, the, the DOD domains, right? Mm. So now we have Arrow, which is headed up by Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick, right? And then, just to keep everybody on their, their toes, um, on December 17, just a few weeks ago, 2022, the UAP acronym was renamed. So what used to be unidentified aerial phenomenon are now unidentified anomalous phenomenon. And that is to bring the acronym into alignment with the name of the office which is all domain anomaly resolution office. So, you know, that's sort of what's happened in the progression of, of the task force, the office, the acronyms on the one side. But what's confusing for a lot of people, and it's because it's confusing, is that at the same time that DOD is going through these permutations and adjustments and shifts, Congress is also driving its own agenda through the NDAA legislation. And so you, you had in the NDAA for fiscal year 2022, you had in six, uh, section 1683, first the establishment of the office to address UAP. And what was frustrating for some people was that it was almost as if DOD front kind of got out ahead of that by announcing its office before the NDAA was passed. And, but there was some realignment and that's got, you know, everything was smoothed over. And then now in the NDAA for fiscal year 2023, which was just passed, you have new reporting procedures for the new acronym Unidentified Anomalous Phenomenon. So, you know, I just, I just, feel a, almost like a civic obligation to kind of go through that. 
yes, very thank clear you. because it's, it's very complicated. And especially I had a, a European colleague say to me, like, what are you talking like? I don't get the acronyms, you know, and, and there is a tendency, I think, sometimes for people who are not familiar with the American system, you know, they might hear Congress do one thing and then they think that's the whole U.S. government approach when it's not. You know, there's mm -hmm. kind of this jockeying and how are we going to handle the topic with DOD and ODNI on one side and, and Congress kind of over here. So, yeah, I'm glad. No. Thank you for letting me get that all out. I appreciate well, that. I appreciate it. Uh, that that was really good information. I remember when that very long, <laughs> I forget exactly but I mean, wow, there, you can't really have an acronym for that one very easily. Uh, uh, but now it's it's arrow, I guess, or arrow, however that, you know, some say. But very interesting. I'll stick with the uh, acronym UFO myself. That <laughs> works. That works good enough because I heard, uh, you know, someone say, when someone asks you, what is a UAP? You're going to say, well, it's a UFO. But, you know, I mean, the reason that term they're shy away from it is because people have associated associated it with, you know, uh, the nutcases saying that it's extraterrestrial. And in their words, I'm not saying people are nutcases. I'm just saying that that is why they wanted to get away from that. It's because the connotation of UFO meaning alien, but it doesn't really. It just means unidentified. It's just a lot of people will, um, you know, will put the two together. And speaking of that. Um, for you, Massimo, the uh, a lot of skeptics have said that I've had on the show over the years, and one of them being Seth Shostak from SETI, but uh, they they just talk about the, you know, the space, and I understand how far away the nearest star is in comparison. Um, I've said this before: if you were in Washington D.C. and you had uh, the sun the size of a grapefruit, the Earth would be the size of a ballpoint pen and the nearest star would be in San Francisco. So that kind of gives you kind of an, uh, uh, an idea of what the vast, vast distances are. Um, but I, I've said this to other people, and I just want your opinion, because people will argue, skeptics will say, there's no way they could ever get here in a lifetime, and et cetera, et cetera. Perhaps there's something in physics or some other way of traveling that they don't have to go through that and I just wonder what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, <clears throat> there are two ways uh, to do um, to be able to cross uh, so long distances. One way is the slow one uh, using uh, solar sails, for instance, yes, or microwave sails or antimatter antimatter propulsion. So the annihilation process uh, generates. Uh, the push at a very high speed, uh, a fraction of the speed of light, that is possible, and it's anyway slow. Uh, you presume that there are very big arcs uh, that contains or living beings, or um, automata, or robots, or um, biological samples uh, to be grown once on this arrived at destination. So it's very slow. It can take thousands of years, okay? But yet there are some kind of uh, like artificial planetoid where very big, uh, where, uh, according to the Dyson hypothesis, uh, um, 
inside which people uh, live, uh, have an artificial um, life. And, uh, uh, and physicist, American physicist in the 70s, Gerard O'Neill, uh, was already able to um, think about colonies, uh, space colonies, uh, around Earth or around the Moon that can contain up to one million uh, inhabitants and where you can reconstruct uh, Earth-like landscapes inside. Okay, So it's possible that uh, there are these artificial planetoids that have been sent uh, uh, away. Uh, the reason could be that uh, their planet uh, was in danger because the, their star is about to become a, a giant, a red giant, uh, during its uh, nuclear evolution, so it would uh, engulf all the their solar system, so it's time to go away. Okay, so that is a possibility. The other one, the most uh, how to say science fiction, we want to call, comes in reality from uh, um, it's a consequence of the uh, one of the solutions of uh, Einstein field equation. Uh, so-called Einstein-Rosenbridge, which uh, is the technical name to name as called war or uh, a way to uh, to make a hole in space-time and uh, uh, pass from a point to another uh, with no danger. And uh, it's not a black hole, it's something else. Uh, but uh, uh, to obtain that, uh, you need a lot of energy, which is called the negative energy, which is taken from the vacuum. Uh, if, for instance, if you want to keep a, a mouth of uh, this wormhole open, a mouth that is, uh, how to say, uh, five inch uh, of diameter open for one second in order to make a, a mouse pass from a side to the other, you would need the same energy that is the um, uh, energy that corresponds to the mass of our planet. So it's an enormous quantity of energy that only, um, how to say, supernal intelligence can uh, create, or that it's possible that due to natural, natural reasons, uh, the universe is full of these wormholes, uh, of these tunnels, where when you enter, uh, you have a short way to, to go wherever you want. But anyway, you have to use conventional methods to go to the gate. And then you jump in. But it's physically, it's, it's a possibility. Uh, only a few uh, um, civilizations can do that. Well, thank you both so much. We're out of time. I know you have a call with the Galileo project coming right up, but I want to thank you both so much. It's been fascinating. I really love it. And the book is out there when this airs, the book will be out there in paperback and get that on Amazon, Extraterrestrial Intelligence, Academic and Social Implications. And uh, I will have a link to that in the show notes. Thank you both so much. Martin, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Take care now. All right, everyone, we'll be back next week. And remember to keep your eyes to the sky. <laughs>